The Start On Demand. On demand. Hey, hey, it's GMAC. On behalf of Brett McGarry and Loren McNabb, this is The Start On Demand. Let's get right down to business. It's The Start On Demand, starting now. It's Friday, 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 and... Uh, Depending on your mood, that may be a good thing, it may be a bad thing, but let me tell you this, Loren McNabb, uh, I feel as though we're working for the weekend a little bit more than we used to, at least if you're in that traditional 9 to 5 Monday through Friday job. I don't know why, but it just feels as though we can get just a little bit of a break from the news of the day and all the things that are weighing us down. Yeah, well... I don't want to be the downer here, but I feel the opposite. I feel now that I'm, you know, the, the weekend is so badly needed, but it's becoming harder and harder to find a way to make the weekend feel different than the weekday. Uh. So I'm on the opposite end of the stick. But you know why? I think let's let's be excited because you're staring at a week off. I am. So perhaps that's reason to cheer for you because it's well deserved, well needed. Maybe a little rest, maybe a little sleep in. You know, those are all those are all good things. So hey, if we can even find ways just to laugh a little, get outside, maybe add a few extra Z's to your morning, then let's do it. Okay, we'll make that happen. And uh, I am looking forward to. Normally, I, I approach a holiday or some time off without a trip associated with it with a little bit of trepidation, but I, I, I confess to really, really being ready for a little bit of time off. It's been uh, quite the week, of course, our COVID-19 numbers. Sorry, folks, we got to talk about it. Uh, yesterday was uh, another day of, of, of way too many uh, deaths in our province. Yeah, 12 deaths. And then, of course, there's the cases and it's the hospitalizations that Rusin says, you know, he's really watching for. That's what needs to come down, right? So that they know that they have this uh, situation under control. And so that we're still not there yet. And so uh, we often talk about what Dr. Rusin says. But today at 637, we're going to delve in a bit more, Greg, to what Brian Pallister really had to say yesterday, uh, depending on how you feel about what he said or depending on how you feel about him. You might have been applauding. You might have been high-fiving. You might have been saying, yes, finally, you know, as he as he spoke up. Uh, you just heard the clip in the newsroom with Jeff Braun where he said, if you don't believe in COVID, you're an idiot. But then he also went on to talk about Christmas and basically that he's going to be the guy who says, you can't have it as normal this year, mm-hmm. but we'll deal with it. And so there were a lot of people reacting to that yesterday. I sent that clip um, to a number of family and friends. And one of the responses I got back was that that was the best leadership clip they've heard in months. And I said, yeah, but the problem is there was a lot of people looking for that kind of tough talk months ago. That clip has actually gone viral. It is all over Twitter. In fact, Paul Stanley of Kiss tweeted it out last night. Rex Chapman, who's famous for uh, tweeting out uh, good Good news stuff, feel good stuff, uh, tweeted it out. And uh, based on some of the mentions and the things in my Twitter feed, there have been Matt Tobin's falling all over themselves, trying to set the record straight with regards to, well, not so quick on the praise here for Brian Palster. Anyway, we will talk about that a little bit later. We do want to have a, a tiny bit of fun this morning. And uh, music is a big part of our lives. But we want to discuss what song would you... Put on your Discman, put on your... Discman? Uh, yeah, your Discman, <laughs> your Walkman, uh, on your turntable, those which 45... Do you remember those? They'd skip all the time. Oh, yeah. You couldn't even walk well, with them. Not unless it's you had like, anti-skip. Oh, I'm going to put on my Discman and then I'm going to sit here because I can't move or I won't be able to listen to this CD. Those, it was worse things, than, the those things were worse than rabbit ears. <laughs> I forgot all about them. But anyway, the point was, however you listen to your music, yes. Greg, what yeah, is our question for question our this morning? This morning? <laughs> if you could only listen to one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? If you could only listen to one song mm-hmm. for the rest of your life, yep. what would it be? Well, if it was what I was listening to on my Walkman, it would be... Mm-bop-dip-dap-dap-boob-dap. 
That would get a little bit tired after a while, I suspect. You get tired after three minutes. <laughs> so yes, we'll take... be, I'm not picking Hansen, but I do You're have not a pick picking that I, Okay. I do have a pick that I have been listening to for about thirty years. Okay. So. Well, it stands the test of time. So tick that box. As the National Hockey League thinks about getting back to play, the NBA's getting ready. They broke camp yesterday for a lot of teams in the National Basketball Association. They will be playing games starting on Christmas Day. We don't know when the National Hockey League will begin. I'm Greg Mackling, along with Loren McNabb. Brett McGarry returns on Monday. And Loren, news yesterday that four NHL teams were pondering, considering somehow, some way, playing their home games outdoors. And if you were to just say that, Greg, what cities do you think would be looking at that? Well, I would think maybe even Winnipeg could handle that, or at least Edmonton, maybe a Montreal. In January, you know, February, March, I'm not so sure. At least we could do the ice, though. Yeah, we could do the ice. That's the only thing I was thinking. Who has the climate to allow for this? Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, as you know, the National Hockey League puts on, in many people's opinions... <laughs> Far too many outdoor games every single day. We had one in Winnipeg. We had one in Regina last year. And the climate doesn't really matter because it's artificial ice. So they've done artificial outdoor ice in Los Angeles. They've done it in Winnipeg. They've done it in Edmonton. And most places in between. Dallas has had an outdoor game. But so, the climate, when we had our game in October, this is what I was thinking, it okay. did matter. We had to delay the start of the game because mm-hmm. of the sun and the heat. Sure. It did impact slightly. So the weather does play a role, even when the ice is artificial. 100% it does. No question about it. So uh, if to answer your question, I thought of the teams that had more moderate climates. Cold enough where the ice wouldn't be compromised the way it was was when we had our game in what was essentially a summer day versus uh, places where it'd be way too cold for fans. Here's the thing. They're thinking about a venue where they could modify attendance. So if you have 30, 35, 40, 45,000 seats, maybe we can have eight, nine, 10,000 paying patrons as some of the NFL teams have done. They are allowing fans, but they are certainly not filling stadiums to capacity. So the teams that are reportedly... Considering this are the Pittsburgh Penguins. I can see that. The Boston Bruins. Makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And then two California teams, the Los Angeles King Kings and the Anaheim Ducks, who are actually, once again, reportedly pondering the idea of sharing outdoor ice for the upcoming season. I don't think this is going to get the go-ahead, but I have to give the owners of those teams credit for thinking outside the box. Everyone, and by everyone, I mean every business owner right now is just, that's what that's where they're living. They haven't been in the box for months now, right? They're thinking, what can I do to stay operational? And the NHL is no different. And so we did have that bubble experience where they played uh, in two cities in Canada in the summer for the Stanley Cup final. Uh, I don't know if any of the teams or players want to go back to that kind of model, but that might be where they have to go. And so now they're thinking, okay, well, would an outdoor scenario work? But that only works for some teams. And so I'm just, I'm curious where this will go because I think outdoor is fun for a moment, (laughs) you know? In a moment in time. It's an experience for a game, maybe two games, but Mm. it's, I don't know, given the climates in any of those things, like, you know, even, even if you were to do this in... Uh, California, where you'd be warm the whole time, in theory, you'd still not not have the same view and experience, right? Not even close. Watching a game outdoors, and I I went to the one in Winnipeg, and I also went to the very first Heritage Classic in Edmonton. I think that was 2003, I want to say. You're so far back from the rink that really the fun is being outside, and then that's about it. So that's going to get old real fast. I agree with you 100%. It's the start on a Friday morning. Some of us are having coffee. We're going to talk about the songs that we'd listen to if we could listen to and have just one song for the rest of time at our disposal. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb, and of course, Jeff Forche, Jeff Braun, and Kelly Moore joining us in this segment of the program. 
And this is from Rattle and Hum, U2's live album and live movie experience where the streets have no name. And I would listen to this song over and over and over again in its live form because of the emotion that it that it brings, the memories that it evokes. This is uh, one of the greatest concert experiences I've ever had in my life. And this captures it at that time back in 1987. And I could relive being in the old St. Paul Civic Center over and over again, November 4th, 1987. Yes, I'm that old. Loren, we're going to uh, go around the horn here, but I, I really can't wait to hear. You have two songs. That doesn't work. <laughs> no. Okay, but That's I just want to... question. <laughs> okay, I'll just play this first one now, and then if we get back to my second one, we'll, I'll explain why. This first one okay. is really just right. based on a having coffee, and we've got I'm all... trusting you. All our friends gathered here, Kelly, Jeff... The other Jeff, the two Jeffs, the Bronze, the Forches, uh, to discuss what song we'd listen to if we only could pick one song until we died. And so this one, this first one, is based on the fact that I love the piano, but also a couple weeks ago we did a Having Coffee, which generated conversations about the concerts we wish we could see again. And this one I'll never be able to see, but I have, since that day we talked about this concert, have listened to this song at least 20 times a day, every day, for the last three weeks. Hit it. Am I playing it? No, I'm not playing it. I'm playing it then. Each morning I get out my diet. Can't barely stand on my feet. Take a look at Take yourself. A look in the mirror and cry. What about your daddy? So it's got the piano. Of course, it has Freddie Mercury. It's got that bounce to it. And uh, I love it. I love this song. So right now, this is what I'm going to pick. If I get a chance to play the actual song, I will. Let's take it away. Who wants to go next? Braun, what's your pick? Um, it's my favorite song of all time. It's, uh, it's a little bit of a throwback from Ben E. King. It's Stand By Me. When the night nice. has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see Simple, pure, and powerful, and I just think, you know, whatever scenario is horrible enough that I'm only allowed to listen to one song for the rest of my life, uh, this one would make me feel a little bit better. <laughs> it's a great song, and and I, I'm guessing there's, are there memories attached as well? Is it just the movie, or is it personal memories Well, there's one well, time Jeff? me and three of my friends went on this two-day hike to find a dead body, and so I remember that. <laughs> How long does it take to tell that story, Jeff? About an hour and a half. <laughs> Kelly uh, Moore? From the first time I heard this song in 2007 at the Canadian Country Music Awards in Regina, it has been my anthem. I absolutely love these guys. Not just because they're from Manitoba, but because they are beautiful people and incredibly talented musicians. Westman's own Doc Walker. Beautiful life. That last line was just for you, Bronner. Oh, thank you. Jeez, are you guys mending fences here on a Friday morning? No, 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 no. It just even though I might be falling apart, I just thought I'd throw that in there before. <laughs> oh, now I, I get the, it. It's a beautiful life part. <laughs> okay, McNabb. Now, so this is your real song? This is my real song. And, and to be truthful, I've listened to this also daily, almost daily, since I was a teenager. And it's also the song I've instructed my family to play at my funeral. I just, I just love it. This is Standing Outside the Fire by Garth Brooks. Standing outside the bar Standing outside the bar Life is not tried, it is merely survived If you're standing outside the bar 
gets me on my feet. It gets me playing a fake air fiddle because who doesn't love fake air fiddle? And sometimes air fiddle. Air fiddle. And you got to go really hard at it. I love country. I like the message, I think. And it like, goes along with the same theme that Braun said, that if, if you're trying to get yourself through something, which maybe we are right now, but most often we are, right? Life is not tried if it's merely survived. So I, I like it. Did we get to Forche? What a wonderful sentiment. I don't think we have time. No. Yeah, we don't have time. Oh, oh Jeff, we'll get God. to yours. We'll get to yours. I promise Selfish we will. Selfish Loren took two songs. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, never. Jeff Braun. is the sound of silence. <laughs> <laughs> How did there you know? Well played. Normally, I'm pretty sure tonight would be the night that we would have our annual Christmas party, but there will be no Christmas parties happening this year. No big vacations. No big plans, Loren. No, and for hundreds of hotels in this province, that represents a really big loss. Scott Jocelyn is the president and CEO of the Manitoba Hotel Association and joins us now. Good morning, Scott. Uh, good morning to you both. For me, it's uh, Foo Fighters, uh, times like these. Not maybe for the end of eternity, but for uh, for what we're dealing with right now. So I crank that up in my car every day on the way home. So. Uh, I think Greg would be applauding that choice. He's a big Foo Fighters fan as well. I, uh, Scott, you're, you're used to, we're using music to get through a lot of things right now. This is a pretty simple sure. question, but how are you doing? How are your members doing right now with the fact that there's got to be very few people in hotel rooms right now? Yeah, it's really, really difficult, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I think every time you guys, and you guys have given me a great opportunity on your station to get to, you know, take the platform. But for us, it's, you know, because so much of our business is obviously face-to-face interacting with people and, and we can't do this now. And again, I'm not debating whether that's the right or wrong thing to do. I mean, we need to get the numbers down, but the reality is it's having a huge impact on what we do. Scott, uh, give our listeners that, that maybe don't know, uh, hotel for most operations is beyond the rooms that uh, your guests sleep in when they're there. That's the ancillary uh, revenues, the extra things, and particularly right now, you would have your ballrooms, banquet uh, centers uh, jam-packed maybe four, five, six nights a week with activities. No, for sure. You know, and you... you uh... Yeah, you hit it right on the head. I, I think I've explained to you guys before, like I'm fortunate to represent two real different types of properties, but you know, the big accommodation properties that are putting lots of rooms through that have the really big ballrooms. And yeah, you, you spoke to some of the challenges that those people would be having. And then the smaller kind of neighborhood, you know, they got the, they got the pub going, they got the VLTs on, they got the, the restaurant that everybody likes to go to. They're booking some rooms and, and, you know, and they're doing those small weddings and, and Christmas parties, et cetera. And, yeah, so both both of my uh, both of my membership uh, are are dealing with lots of challenges right now. And this would be a a big season, would it not? I'm thinking, you know, I grew up in West Western Manitoba, but you might come in to Winnipeg for, to do some Christmas shopping, which you can't do much of right now, or can't do it in the way you'd like to do it. You would get a hotel room. There might be Christmas parties. There might be different conventions at this time of year, and none of that's happening. So that how big is December in this year? This to the actual year of a hoteler. You know, it's interesting you ask that because obviously we're so closely connected with, you know, people, you know, in the retail world or, you know, the restaurant world or anything tourism. And yeah, there'd be lots of people that would be, you know, traveling into the city and they're going to make it a weekend and they're going to do their shopping and maybe there's an event tied in. So when all that is is tied in and everything that we're dealing with right now, we can't do those things, then obviously we're incredibly challenged. So, oh, go ahead, Loren. I just wanted to ask, Scott, do you know what percentage in terms of, like, where are hotels at in terms of vacancy? And then also how close they might be, how many hotels have you heard of that are on the cusp of closing? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, as, as far as vacancies go, especially the downtown properties in Winnipeg, they're, you know, extremely impacted. I think you'd have a tough time finding anyone that's doing you know, any more than probably 20% a night. And to run a hotel, you've probably, you know, run a hotel like that, you've probably got to be doing 60, 65% at least, to, you know, to make a go of it. So, you know, we're, uh, we're hoping that people can weather, uh, weather through it. We're, you know, we've had some dialogue with all levels of government. It's essential to us that everyone, all levels of government are going to have to help us get out of this. And, you know, so we continue to make the case that, uh, you know, we need assistance. We're one of the hardest uh, impacted industries. It's going to take longer for us to recover than anyone else. You know, we need assistance so we can go back to doing what we do. 
And without a healthy restaurant and hotel industry, it's impossible to attract the big events that are going to be key. Communities and cities around the world are going to be competing for those meetings once we can get back to that way of life, right, Scott? Like, there's going to be huge competition because it does amazing things for the economy when we bring people from outside of Winnipeg, from outside of Manitoba to spend their money. Yeah, no, for sure. The... uh you know, the reality, we're hoping that there's a huge thirst when we get through this, that all of a sudden, you know, that people just say, hey, you know, it's safe to go out, it's safe to do it again. And, you know, we hope we're still around. Uh, I'm not trying to be the doomsday guy, but I mean, you know, we hope that everyone is still around that's here today, uh, you know, that we can again go back to doing all it is that we, you know, we were doing for the province prior to COVID. You know, we collect tons of taxes, we employ tons of people, you know, we want to go back to that. Scott Jocelyn, thank you as always. We appreciate your time. And if we don't speak before Christmas, uh, I have to say best of the season to you, sir. Yeah, same to you guys. Thanks very much for giving me the platform. I always appreciate it. I have seen, I think, fewer for sale signs over the last week or so uh, popping up. I get these notifications because I'm a serial uh, real estate hunter and uh, my realtor uh, does an amazing job to keep me up to date. But in the last 10, 11 days, I haven't had a ton of listings popping up in my email box. Now, that was a much different story in September, October and November. Yeah, Winnipeg Realtors is reporting that six consecutive months of what they're saying is record monthly sales have pushed the year-to-date sales over 15,000 for the very first time. The numbers are really incredible in terms of how fast these houses are going, how quickly the new listings are coming off, and uh, where we might be heading as we go into the new year. And so we're joined now by Peter Squire, Vice President of External Relations and Market Intelligence for Winnipeg Realtors. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Loren. Good morning, Greg. We said back in the spring when when you guys first started reporting just how incredible these sales were that we didn't personally didn't see that coming because I thought of all the things people wouldn't be doing in a pandemic, it would be shopping for what is considered the, the biggest purchase of their life. But here we are six months later. These numbers are really incredible. Were you surprised? Yeah, I think all of us, no one, even including me, that's supposed to know the market better than anyone else, uh, could have predicted what's actually transpired. You know, just this morning, I see a lot of articles and I caught an article, you know, market frenzy. And I looked at where it's from, New York Times. Well, I don't, we don't need to go to New York to find frenzy. We've had it in Winnipeg for the last six months. You know, we've really had a consecutive six month run of record breaking months. And when we talked about a V recovery, which I certainly saw coming fairly early on, once we got into June, uh, that's turned into a long check mark. That line has just kept going up. We've never really stopped. And that's what, you know, it'd be very hard to predict that it could be this sustainable. And I think we're going to run the table right to the end of the year. I mean, now December, uh, I'm almost certain will likely outperform what we've ever seen before in December. And when, Greg, when you talk about listings, we do see listings start to really drop off at the end of the year and the beginning of the next year. Uh, and that has been the case where our listings really haven't stood out this year, but the sales have. The buyers have been much more motivated during these COVID times than the, the sellers. So there's been an imbalance that's now being created. We're down to about two months of supply overall, where we started out the year around five months, which is considered a more balanced market. Peter, it feels probably counterintuitive to a lot of people that we're seeing this type of movement, number of homes changing hands and the number of million-dollar homes. I think, it was, it, was it 14 last month? Yes, yes, Greg, that was a record. I've never seen a month. I think we've been up to 9 or 10 maybe, if that. So that's a record, and yeah, and we'll probably have a record in terms of upper-end sales this year. That's the other thing, beyond the, the million-dollar ones, which – uh, we, we've seen that 500000 to 750 category, which for a lot of cities, I guess Toronto, Vancouver, and others would be starter markets. Uh, but for our market, that's certainly more upper end. And we've seen that just, uh, you know, just flourish. Like uh, this past month of November, it was almost double the number of sales that we had the same month in 2019. So that upper end category, the move up, you know, the, what I consider the move up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, buyers, they've really come out a, a, and uh, been active in our market this year. 
I mentioned that I wanted to get from you uh, the a number of or percentage of listings that are selling for over asking because that whole dreaded bidding war mm-hmm. made a return this year. And uh, I know from your data here, you're saying really the average is that what you ask for, that's what you're getting uh, for your property. But what percentage of houses yeah. are selling for more than asking, Peter? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, I always liked looking at that number. You, I call it the equilibrium where you're really matching your sales and listings. That's for all sales. But, but obviously there, there's a variance amongst all those sales that we have. But yeah, in November again, we saw about 32%. So I'd say the last three or four months, almost a third of all our, certainly of the single family home sales have been uh, above list price and and i again i've heard stories of you know, not just a thousand or two but you know 10 20 i mean some have been significantly above list price which you know we really haven't seen for a number of years is there a why in all this that we had one listener text in wondering if it's possible that there are people because of the pandemic because they've either lost their jobs or have been forced to move that that's why we're, we're seeing more homes uh yeah. being sold at this time are you hearing that like what's the why peter well, you know i think we have to keep in mind and be sensitive to the the tough times we're in uh that not all sales are happy ones right that uh, they, they, there's so many different reasons that trigger you know sales but you know i think a lot of the main reason and i'm certainly to deduce from especially the last few months is it's really kind of the the space with with people a lot more people working from home and just being at home a lot more because it's stay home and and as most of us are and i'm working from home right now uh people are looking around and saying you know what maybe this is there's something else we need or uh, and it doesn't mean it has to be a big fancy home, but something different. And and maybe in some cases it's location. I don't think we're seeing some of that flight outside the city that they're talking about in cities like Toronto, where they're saying people are leaving the downtowns and going far aflung. You know, we, we are seeing people that, have, you know, strong movement outside Winnipeg. We've seen that for the last probably five to 10 years. So that's not a new trend. So I think it's more just the space and what would suit them, depending on what their current situation is as a family or, uh, you know, as as people living in their current homes. Well, Peter, we always appreciate appreciate the access on on short notice, no less. Uh, All the best of the season to you. Hope you and your family have a Merry Christmas as best as can be expected under these circumstances. And uh, once again, thanks for taking time with us on 680 CJOB. Well, thanks for calling me and all the safe to, to all you guys at CJOB. And uh, we're going to get through this, as we all know, but it's just going to take time. I like that message. Peter Squire is Vice President of External Relations and Market Intelligence with Winnipeg Realtors. Howard Chuck, Eric, is, of course, the son of the late great and former Winnipeg Jets captain, Dale Howarchuk. We heard how the Howarchuk Strong Movement is going to share 12 $1,000 gifts with worthwhile Winnipeg organizations, Loren. And as we know all too well, Manitoba's generosity really knows no bounds, Greg. And so we're pleased to bring on our next guest who has their own plan to make this Christmas a little brighter in our province. His name is Peter Tessier. He's the Vice President of Sales and Marketing with BSI Insurance. And we'd like to wish good morning to Peter. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for what you're doing. Tell us all about this. Because we care, 12 Ks of Christmas, $12,000 of a Christmas. What's, what are we calling this? It's the 12 Ks of Christmas, right? Ryan's the 12 days of Christmas. And, you know, BSI has a a traditionally a charitable side of its uh, community involvement, and it's our Because We Care program. And we give back um, what we feel is a very significant uh, sum of money back into our communities to projects and ventures that need assistance and support every year. And this year, because it's a different kind of year, we felt there was an opportunity to try and make Christmas just a little bit better for people and organizations and causes in need. And we wanted to roll out an idea that got the community involved 
to identify things that we may not be aware of. And that's what we're hoping to get from with the 12Ks of Christmas, where we're going to announce $1,000 a day of donations every day for 12 days, starting next week. Peter, there are so many worthwhile organizations in our city that people have never heard of. And and I think in that same vein, we may not realize what a difference $1,000 might make for those organizations. That's exactly it. And, you know, it's a trying time. We all know it. Everything is upside down in our world right now, and we don't even know who to identify who needs help, and we need help figuring that out to make things better for people who we may not even know are suffering. And, you know, we've had an overwhelming amount of submissions in just this week since we launched the the campaign, and it's incredible what we've seen people nominate others for, causes and stuff. It's very moving. It's it really is incredible to see. I, I said this earlier this week that I can't get over the number of people that even with what everyone is going through, so many people um, struggling right now that the giving continues. So what kind of stories have you heard in terms of what people are hoping to uh, win is the right word, you know, w- get a little hand up. What are they sharing with you in terms of stories, I, Peter? I'll be really frank. Um, I was not prepared for some of the things we would be looking at and how hard it pulls on your heartstrings. Um, we've had people nominate families who who are too um, embarrassed, I guess is the right word, to come forward because they have pride in their ability to support themselves, but they know they're not able to maybe help their kids with a Christmas gift. And, you know, it's the, the little things in the community where people, you know, you know, it gets swept away or people try to hide from potential shame or not wanting others to worry. And those are the ones that really pull on you when you realize there's just the people you may see normally in a normal world at the at the store or whatever who just aren't getting by. And those are the ones where you wonder, like, oh, my goodness, you know, you hear about someone who hasn't been able to pay rent for three months. And they, you know, they've got two kids at home who may not get a Christmas present. I mean, it's it's little things like that. And if we can find a way to get enough out to people um, to help them, we will. It's 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 incredible. And that's the ones that you see a lot of. It's the micro amounts. And you realize how many people really aren't getting by right now. Peter Eric said the most difficult, he wasn't prepared for the fact the most difficult thing wasn't going to be finding or raising the money, but it was going to be deciding who gets this money. And it sounds like you're in the exact same position, my friend. That's exactly it, Greg. We um, we have to really think about how we're going to do this. And I think there's probably some other issues or realities that we didn't plan on. We did this to try and make things a little brighter and we're going to do our best to do it but we it's going to be hard when we get down to it and we know we're going to be disappointing some people and you know if if anyone wants to get on board with us reach out to me we're if you want to help make things brighter for people we're open to people coming on and and working with us to, to to expand this out just get in touch with me we'll make something happen how do people connect peter we're at the top of the hour here so we got to run yeah, bsimb.com. Look me up on there. Pete Tessier, I'm the VP Sales and Marketing. There's a submission form. Fill it out. It's right on the homepage. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Pete. Thank you for what you're doing, and thanks for uh, spending some time with us this morning. Uh, you've brightened and inspired a, a lot of people today. Many thanks. Thank you. You know, it's one song I never appreciated really until a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I want to lay you down in a bed oh, of roses. And That's then pretty I, good. Yeah, I, I know. I've been working on that alone in my kitchen. I started doing lunges around. I had on a pair of leather pants, just to be clear, so I felt really connected to the song. I felt like I could be singing this song. And then I started lunging around to it, and since then, I have loved that song. Are you holding in your hand a spatula or a wooden spoon? Uh, nothing, but I think going forward, I will definitely take up a spatula. <laughs> you need a utensil to complete the look, and you must have, of course, a tennis racket hanging around to uh, do the to do the guitar solo, yeah, the Richie Sambora parts. A black turtleneck, of course, because of, that's well, fit. Of course. Well, before we... I just want to give a shout-out to Jeff Forche, who's picking these tunes like a DJ. Like, he's like a DJ at a social, and he is... <gasps> 
he is fulfilling all our requests this this morning. Usually the DJs ignore me at the social because I'm, I'm, I'm yelling, play I'm just, poison! I'm just trying to make sure I play the right songs, that's all. <laughs> well, you're not messing up a Bon Jovi song. If there's anybody in this building that loves Bon Jovi as much as I do, it's Jeff Forche. So thanks for your text messages. Keep them coming in. We've got about five more minutes for you to get in on the Santa Lucia $20 gift card. And uh, the story is once again so intimate, so personal. And uh, we appreciate you sharing that part of your life with us. We've been talking about the Christmas movies that uh, we need to watch this weekend. But what about the classic movies we've never watched but should maybe the ones that you've been guilted into watching over the years or ones that you've discovered and you go how did I not watch this until now my parents have basically disowned me because I refuse to watch Fargo here's the thing I love everybody in Fargo but I've heard about this wood chipper scene and I just don't need it in my life at this point in my life I'm not ready for that kind of darkness I did watch the show Fargo enjoyed it immensely but I have yet to see Fargo the movie what about you guys? Oh. Mine was that I had just this week started watching Star Wars with the kids. And to be honest, we got about 30 minutes in, then it was bedtime, and we haven't gone back to it. They've seen most, most of them, but I just, it'll be a struggle for me to work through that. I got to be honest. I'm just not interested. You, oh. should, you should watch The Mandalorian. It's worth it just for Baby Yoda. Oh, really? But then you have to get the Disney Plus. That's true. You got the Disney Plus now, right, Lorraine? That's why we started watching it. I finally uh, caved into that, and uh, I'm glad I did because there's all sorts of great movies on there. We did, I also, for the first time this week, week we started watching Toy Story, and it's awesome. Oh, Toy Story, so, so good, so well made, so well done. Uh, I didn't get around, I don't think, to sharing mine. Mine on my list of classic movies was Citizen Kane, especially with this movie Mank coming out now, about the, I guess, is the director of Citizen Kane. But for me, it's apocalypse now i've never seen apocalypse now from start until finish and uh, i would really like to see it uh, just because of the colors the richness of the movie itself i think it's done in uh, kodachrome or whatever that uh type of film was back in the in the 70s and so I, i'd like to see that and the soundtrack is uh outstanding as well so uh what about the side hus- hustles or seasonal jobs that you've had over the years like the strange things that you've done for cash Yeah, seasonal job. I mean, just as a student, when I was in university, I was a sign girl in Saskatchewan. Their highways are government fixed. Oh, wow. That was great English. Wow. It's clearly 9 a.m. and I need some coffee. But the government does the highway repair. So I was a sign girl. Crazy money. You'd work really long hours. And folks were so kind, so prairie-like. Like they drop you off a bottle of water. Sometimes they drop you off a beer. Great. Excuse me? You didn't drink it while working, obviously, no, no, but for of later. Of course not. You know, well, that for later. kind of interesting. That's actually a hard job. I can, like, you know, you're standing there and the, 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 the sun beating down on you and the dusty road sometimes and people whipping by too fast. So I'm happy to hear that they were kind. Yeah, most of them were. I mean, they were bad drivers. Of course, they're always are bad drivers. But do you guys have any amazing side jobs you want to tell me about? Mm. I was trying to, uh, now I can't remember the one I the was The bottle collection share. you mentioned. Oh, you yes. were a bottle collector. <laughs> yes, I was a bottle collector. Well, I've been a milkman oh, at one point in my life. Uh, but uh, yeah, when we were younger, we actually, we had our own bottle drive, uh, not to support the Boy Scouts or the Cubs or the or the Beavers, to just to you. support us because uh, I needed <laughs> new drumsticks and my brother needed tennis balls. And uh, we went around and our neighbors, uh, yeah, kindly donated, I think between the three of us. Uh, Corinne Peters and my brothers, uh, myself and my brother, we collected about $24 one summer. Wow, impressive uh, cash That's there. when we had glass bottles. The two-liter bullet-shaped glass bottles were crazy. And they were worth, I think, $0.25. Cents. They might have been $0.50. Cents. I can't remember. 204-780-6868. Those were a really good get. What a time to be alive. Oh, what a time to be alive. We should go back to glass, I think. Uh, before we let you run, we've got to talk about the winter activities that you've never tried but would like to try or maybe some things that you're afraid of doing or have been hesitant to do. And you go, you know what? I'm ready to do that now. I'm curious if there are any CGOB listeners who are really avid cross-country skiers. I have done it before, but it, it, it takes a lot of coordination and amazing exercise. I mean, that is quite the feat if you manage to cross-country ski regularly. And I hear there are Winnipeggers who will commute from one place to another mm-hmm. 
by cross-country ski, ski, which I just think is so cool. Well, especially when the, yeah, when the river trails are open, right? And they're the ones that do the skajoring, which is to be the, on your cross-country. The what? One more time. Skajoring, and you... It's on. It's sometimes it's with a sled, and you have your dog pull you. But sometimes people will go on their cross country skis. That's how they usually do it, and they'll attach themselves to their dog. You have to have a big dog, and then they it's skidoring. My my neighbor skidoring. does that. My neighbor Rick and his dog Kia do that. Aww. I didn't know that's what it was called. Very official term, skidoring. Skidoring. Gabby, we missed you last week. Promise you'll come back next week. I will be here next Friday. I'm going to skajor out of here. <laughs> so fast. Skedaddle, skajor, however you do, oh, be safe, okay? Somebody take me off air. You guys have a great Friday. Okay, Jeff, mm-hmm. press her button. Get her, off, get her off the air. There's one thing that I... Speak to anybody about it, too, or, or it happened to me the first night I was a prisoner of war. And uh, I won't ever tell anybody about that. That's between me and the man upstairs. Was there anything that ever happened to you? Yes, there's something that happened to me. Can you not tell me, Dad? No, I couldn't tell anybody about it. The voice you hear at the end there is Pat Peterson, George's daughter, and she joins us now. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Lauren. We also have with us filmmaker, apologies, Pat. We also have with us filmmaker Vivica Melke. Good morning. Good morning. I want to thank you both for taking the time to be with us. Uh, Greg and I have been watching parts of the documentary over the past couple of days and again this morning. And, and Pat, I'll start with you. Um, I want to thank you so much, you and your dad, for sharing your stories uh, both here and in that documentary because we know far too often uh, we didn't get the full story sometimes from our veterans and all they went through. I can only imagine how hard that must have been to hear some of your dad's thought. What was it like for you? Oh, Lauren, um, first of all, Yes, it was, I've learned so much more as an adult, as opposed to being a child. Um, My dad did not speak. Um, We're a family of three daughters, and dad never spoke um, of the atrocities that he had been through. It's only in my uh, adult years um, that I really, uh, truly understood what my dad had gone through and his comrades. Vivekka, these stories are so powerful and, uh, as Pat's mentioning, so rarely shared. What is it that, A, inspired you to to reach out and try and share these stories and, and tell us about the experience of hearing alongside, in Pat's case, perhaps hearing stories that were never told before? I'm, first of all, I have to say I'm so honoured that Pat agreed to be part of this film. Um uh, and, of course, George, but I think Pat knows that it was a surprise that she came in on that interview. And yeah. our main concern was the health, mental health and spiritual and emotional health of George at that moment. Um, so and I think that's where documentary filmmakers have to have a responsibility to step back and understand that this has gone beyond a film. It's about a healing. It's about a process. And we are witness to something that we need consent to continue listening to. So um, it was an incredibly powerful interview, one of the most powerful in my career. Um, This story for me, uh, I'm not even born in Canada, so I have to say that for me this story was a history adopted. Um, And I really wanted to tell the story because it's about something that disappeared. The Canadians disappeared for almost two to three years in 1941 after an 18-day battle, and it was simply because the Geneva Convention was not respected, letters were not allowed, Uh, We had no idea what happened to them. There are stories of soldiers out of Quebec who their wives remarried, not knowing what had happened to them. And for me, today, we are talking about a story that is nowhere in the history books. And I'm not just talking about the Canadian story. I'm talking about all Allied POW suffering is nowhere in Japanese history books. And for me, that is unacceptable. And so I decided to spend nine years making a film, finding research that showed the suffering on both sides of the fence. Yeah, both sides of the fence. That's what's so intriguing about this, because, of course, you have uh, George McDonald and George Peterson sharing their stories from inside 
Viveka, but you also have yes. the story from someone watching on the outside. And so as I was watching that, I thought, oh, my God, as a little girl to, to go in. And, and I think it says that she wasn't to make eye contact with her father, correct? If she did, he'd be shot. That was the Russian soldier inside the camp? Yes, that's right. The Hong Kong veterans, uh, sorry, the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps were made up of all sorts of different countries that decided to side with the British and to, to defend Hong Kong. Uh, Luba Estes' father is a white Russian, which means they have fled the Bolshevik Revolution and are living in Hong Kong. It's very rare that they are left in Hong Kong during the occupation, and they're simply left there because they're stateless. They have no country. So they're not put into Stanley internment camp, and they're left outside. And of course, for me, what what really moved me, um, I, I move beyond words, sorry, when I talk about George and his family. Um, but what really moved me is that we have to ask what our veterans saw, not only what they suffered themselves, but what were they witness to through a fence that was that was you could see through. It was on a wall. And so that the, the PTSD that comes from helplessness of not being able to help and being sent as our boys to go and to help these these countries and then be absolutely helpless. It was it was very traumatic. Um, and so yes, the story is unique because it brings together a civilian story and an army story. Viveka, you know, this whole notion of understanding where we've come from and where we're going and the connection between the two is is something that I think genuine storytellers understand. What What is it that you get from that connection, why they are so important to one another? Because I think war happens on landscapes that are not separate from each other. And whether it was Luba Estes, who was a girl of 10 walking that fence and not able to look because she, would ha- she could have been shot and her father would have been shot by the guard who was standing, who's in the tower looking down on that experience. I think that that landscape, it, it doesn't have borders to it. Um, starvation was occurring within Hong Kong and inside the camp and the Japanese soldiers were starving also. So I think sometimes we, we put things into, into segments and into boxes and really it's one landscape that was occurring at the same time and, and memory that actually flows through all of those those stories. We're speaking with Viveka, uh, Viveka sorry, Melki, who's the filmmaker of The Fence, this documentary that features two prisoners of war who were uh, in a Japanese camp in Hong Kong. And of course, we're speaking with Pat Petersons, whose father is featured in this film. He's the last surviving Winnipeg Grenadier, and we shared some audio, Pat, with our listeners. So compelling to hear. I'm curious, after all this time, what convinced your father to finally speak and share some of his experiences? Um, Lauren, my, my dad, um, spoke to many school groups, um, in our adult years. He would go to various school groups and, and I, I think he realized the importance of telling his story then to younger children in elementary schools and all the way up to high schools. Towards Remembrance Day, he would, he would speak on many occasions and actively involved in, in various services. And I, I believe he realized how much was missing in education. Mm-hmm. And through his his own family, our ignorance, I guess, and not being taught, even though he was our dad and is our dad, he and not speaking to us, I think he felt the importance of other children knowing and their families knowing of, of what he went through. He would take Q&As, but would only answer what he felt comfortable. He would never answer. And, and questions were, did you ever kill anybody? And Dad would honestly say that, would be t- that was between him and the guy upstairs, the man upstairs. So I, I really do feel my dad felt an obligation to educate, even though he couldn't do it at home. Pat? Um, first of all, I want to uh, send my sincere uh, thank you and gratitude to your father for his service and and to you as well, because I think this is the under uh, under the under understood part of war, part of conflict is are the stories that soldiers bring home. Uh, the the things that that they simply cannot leave behind. When you heard these stories for the first time, I, I'm interested to know if it put into perspective. Did you, not only did you learn these stories, but did it put into perspective the relationship that you'd had with your father? And and did it and it did it turn on any lights for you in terms of uh, perhaps maybe that's why this was this way or that was that way? Yes, Greg. Thank you. Yes. Um, as Rebecca mentioned, I was surprised in, in partaking in the documentary. 
Um, but yes, uh, I have such a, a different understanding of my dad and our family life um, because of his circumstances. He was 20 years old. And I, I, I look at a 20-year-old, myself included, where I had the responsibility, responsibility to leave my family as my dad did and his friends, his buddies, his life as he knew it to go off to the atrocities he was about to face, endure. So I have a, a different understanding, and it's not too late to understand my dad and what he, um, he did and, and what he missed out um, in our family growing up. Um, I have a better understanding of why he missed out on things and a, a, a much greater respect for my father. And it's not, it's not too late. It, it, it's not too late. The, um, I guess the misunderstanding was that there was not the communication, again, of educating us as his children what he went through. He tried to protect us against that. He didn't want us to know the atrocities. He, Is there he tried healing to in that for you, Pat? Pardon me? I'm sorry. Like in, in, so I'm, I'm, I apologize. You said he tried, he tried to move on, I'm guessing, then, and not deal and to not speak to that? Yeah. Is there healing in hearing these things now for you or your father? Like, was there any relief in, in finishing the documentary and seeing it for you and perhaps understanding one another better? I, I feel that. I absolutely do. When I, when I reached out to him, it was not as a father to a daughter, but as one human to another, to very basic. I, wanted, I saw someone so hurt that I could only embrace him and and hope to alleviate some of that hurt which i know i can never do but yes i i absolutely feel for my dad in a in a totally different way pat peterson thank you for sharing some time with us these stories these intimate emotions and feelings with us this morning it's powerful conversation i really genuinely wish we had more time to continue this but uh we look forward to seeing this documentary thank you pat Thank you both Greg and Lauren. Viveka, you did an amazing job on the documentary. My dad would be privileged. Thank you for doing such an amazing job. Thank you so job. much, Pat. Thank you. Viveka, thank you for your work on this. It debuts on the documentary channel. This is happening Sunday, December 6th. Once again, Montreal filmmaker Viveka Melki and Pat Peterson, our guests this morning on The Start. Viveka, Pat, once again, thank you for uh, sharing this incredible story, this eye-opening, this heart-wrenching story. It, it's powerful beyond words. Thank you, Greg. I, I do want to say that I will be coming out to Winnipeg as soon as we can be safe for COVID and having screenings in theatres in Winnipeg. This is a very important story, and I look forward to, to working with the museums there to have some, some free public screening. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.